So my name is Nathaniel. We're starting a new series today, which is very exciting. If you were here last week, you might have been thinking, didn't Dan say we were starting to do the same sermon in the morning and the evening? Don't worry, I'm not just going to try and do Luke's sermon from this morning. Only Luke could do that. Um, That's starting in September. Uh, And until then, we're doing uh, different sermons in the morning and in the evenings. And I'm really excited to start this series. Our new preaching series is named Jesus Saves. And we're going to be spending a few weeks looking at all the ways that Jesus is a savior. Now, when I say that title, I imagine there's probably a divide in the room of the people who are here who are not Christians. You don't know Jesus and you're thinking, what? Jesus saves? What does he save me from? Can I be saved? And you'll have a number of questions already. And then there might be Christians in the room who are thinking, well, duh, that's Christianity, isn't it? We've just had, you know, several weeks of really difficult questions with meaty theology and practical application. Are we doing several sermons on this one topic? I thought, I thought we all knew that Jesus saves. Yes, we are doing multiple topics on Jesus saves, and it's going to be so good, because if you don't have Jesus saves in your heart, then everything else, the, the meaty theology, the practical application, can just go wildly wrong. If you don't have Jesus saves in your heart, then you're probably not going to be very good at, say, resting, because you don't know that you're saved by God, you've been brought into his family, and that you don't need to chase other things to find your security. If you don't know in your heart that Jesus saves, then you're probably not going to want to join the Go team and evangelize that much, because you don't have it as this amazing, incredible truth in your heart that Jesus saves. If you don't have any heart that Jesus saves, your Bible reading is going to be difficult and alienating. If you don't have any heart that Jesus saves, you'll be led towards legalism. And so we're just going to say every week, Jesus saves. Because those are all things, all those things I said are things that we all fall prey to. You're, you're likely to find yourself striving for your salvation, or you're likely to kind of let evangelism drop off or find Bible reading tricky. And we're going to say every week that Jesus saves. And think of it a bit like having uh, a sight impediment. And every morning you wake up, you put on those glasses, and suddenly you can see clearly. And it's by saying week on week that Jesus saves that we're going to be able to see everything else in the Bible uh, clearly. And all of Christianity explodes from this one phenomenal truth that Jesus saves. So don't think that because you might already know that Jesus saves that uh, these are going to be not challenging or perhaps stuff you've heard before. This is going to be life-changing, life-giving truth that we're going to be covering over the next few weeks. And tonight's topic Uh, when we're looking at the characteristics of Jesus, we're looking at Jesus who is a savior who welcomes sinners. And again, that that divide might be there. The people that didn't know that Jesus saves and like, what, he welcomes sinners? Am I a sinner? What's a sinner? Would he welcome me in? And then there are other people, perhaps who have grown up in Sunday school and think, well, that's the first thing we were taught. I even knew a song. His name is Jesus friend of sinners. It's an absolute belter. Um, so you might think, oh, I know this. But actually, 
I think it's one of those things that we kind of like, it's a bit of theology that would be able to reel off if someone asked us. But when we think about the practical applications of it, it requires a bit of soul searching and thinking, well, do I do that? And I think it has, regardless of where on that spectrum you land from, I don't know any of this, to, yeah, I think I'm pretty good at this. I think this has profound implications for your life. Because we want to look, as Christians, more like Jesus. And so we want to get better at welcoming sinners ourselves. And there's, a, there's an old saying that says, familiarity breeds contempt. And you may think, well, I've always known that Jesus welcomes in sinners. Do you know, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty good at that. I think I'm all right at welcoming sinners. But the risk then is that you plateau in, in your sort of like, your, your journey towards learning more about Jesus to becoming more like him. Because you just think, yeah, I've got that sorted. But I want to dig a bit deeper tonight. Um, and I think that God is actually going to provoke some of you here to really wrestle with this idea of welcoming sinners. What does that look like for you? And we're going to start by reading the Bible. In the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. This come up on the screen behind me. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a doctor or a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God, thank you for your son, Jesus, who saved us and can save, who who died for us to save so many people, to rescue all that would call on his name. And I just ask that you would send your Holy Spirit now to be at work in our hearts, to uh, speak to us as we look at your word, to help your word make sense to us and to change us to look more like Jesus. Amen. Who is the biggest villain for you? Who are the villains that you've, the people that you've always thought, um, these guys are the worst? And as you might judge from the picture behind me, I'm not talking about the big purple guy from the new Avengers film. Although if you've seen that, you'll realize he is quite bad, as is the film. Controversy. Um, No, I'm not talking about fictional villains. I'm talking about real people, the people that just kind of make your stomach churn a little bit. So these pictures we have here, um, Martin Shkreli is the the guy raising his hand like this. Um, He is a, uh, a person who I believe is younger than me. And he brought the rights to a life-saving drug and then increased the price of it by a factor of 56 to make money when it was an incredibly cheap drug uh, that could have saved lots of people. And he, he was just greedy and um, 
if you're a Wu-Tang Clan fan, he also bought the only existing copy of their latest album and won't let anyone else listen to it. So a lot of people dislike this guy. He's, he's one of those people that's totally motivated by greed. The other guy is uh, Fred Goodwin, previously Sir Fred Goodwin, who uh, was the head of RBS and then bailed not long before uh, RBS crashed. The company lost tens of billions, and um, it was all part of this great financial crash of a few years ago, and he walked away from it getting a, a massive bonus of several million, um, and all that he seemed to suffer was to lose his knighthood. And again, it's one of those people you just think the injustice really rankles. I think Levi was a little bit like these guys. I think he was probably one of the biggest villains of his day. He was a tax collector, and um, that isn't just like someone who works for HMRC today. Uh, this is a totally different role to a tax collector as we would understand it. This is someone who was Jewish, but was working for the oppressing um, Roman force that had taken over um, and was taxing the people with these really punitive taxes and then charging more so that they could get a bit extra on the side. Essentially, in a time of uh, foreign invasion and um, economic desperation, here were people getting rich off other people's poverty. And uh, throw in you know, that kind of um, betrayal, and you also have the fact that they're betraying their nation as well by doing that. It's not too dissimilar to think of them as like the people in France that informed the Nazis of like uh, French spy goings on and that kind of thing. It's a, it's a real betrayal of nation and neighbors. And they were getting rich in the process. I'm talking about how bad he was because I want you to feel it. Sometimes when we read about tax collectors in the Bible, be it becoming disciples, we think, oh yeah, they weren't very liked, but um, sure, they, they joined the disciples. But actually, it wouldn't be too wrong to sympathize with the Pharisees at being annoyed at Jesus hanging out with these people because they are among the worst of that society. Imagine if people like that were around today. I, I don't think they would be too dissimilar to the people that did get rich off the financial crash when everyone else was struggling. Imagine the opinion columns in The Guardian about someone like Levi. And yet Jesus makes a beeline straight for him and says, follow me. I tried to work out what it was about Jesus that made Levi abandon his job seemingly with only two words, follow me and follow Jesus in a moment like that. And I think it was just that Jesus gave him the time of day, that he approached him with dignity and compassion. Because you see, Levi was probably racked with guilt. He probably knew what other people said about him. He had friends, but they were just other tax collectors as well. He was probably reviled and he probably knew it. And here comes someone who says, I want to spend time with you. Follow me. Join me. And Jesus was doing this all the time. It wasn't 
just tax collectors that Jesus welcomed into his group um, or spent time with. We read of one other story where he spends some time showing compassion to an adulterous Samaritan woman. And that's like a triple whammy of things that Jesus should have been avoiding by the standards of society. He befriended prostitutes and religious zealots, the kind of people who were despised across all of society. People that were reviled then and are reviled today too. And if you're aiming to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to act like him, you need to welcome in sinners as well. You need to show compassion and mercy and dignity to the sinners that you encounter in your everyday life. That's what being more like Christ looks like. And I think we need to reduce our judgment and increase our compassion. And I think those two things are almost inversely proportional in terms of the amount of emotional energy that your heart has to spend on life. If you're pouring all of your emotional energy into judgment, then you have less emotional energy for compassion. But if you actively reduce the amount that you're judging other people, then you have more emotional energy for compassion. And you, it's hard to hold those two things at once. So as your judgment goes down, your compassion goes up. And I'll talk a bit more about how we can do that later on. But that's kind of the metric I want you to think about today when it talks about being more like Jesus. Let that judgment go down and the compassion go up. But I think the provocation for you as a fairly young crowd here in Edinburgh is to realize that Jesus loved people that disgusted everyone. See, the Pharisees were as disgusted by Jesus hanging out with tax collectors as they were with him hanging out with um, the sexually immoral or, or the religious rebels. Because the world isn't disgusted by just one group of people. That's why the Guardian and the Daily Mail hate different people and, and write screeds against different types of people. Uh, there's, there's a term uh, in sociology known as the outgroup, and that's the people outside of your circle of moral acceptability. And generally, um, I, I'm going to make a generalization here, but I, I think it, it's, it's a spectrum that largely holds true. And I would say if you spend a lot of your time on uh, social media, following left-wing people and reading, um, reading left-wing columns and blogs, you're going to find it a lot easier to agree with Jesus when he is um, befriending and showing compassion to uh, sexually immoral people and religious rebels. I think you're going to be like, look at Jesus' compassion. I want to be like that. And that's great. But perhaps your outgroup then are... Uh, the, the people who are um, bigoted or angry or, or the people in the big banks like we were talking about earlier. And if one of those was put in your path, would you be as ready to show compassion and mercy to them? And on the flip side, if you sympathize with the rich bankers, there's a chance that there'll be people in your outgroup too that you will struggle to show forgiveness to. Perhaps, um, like benefit fraudsters, or something like that. And everybody has these people in society where we think, 
those guys are the bad guys. But we sometimes don't identify that feeling in our hearts because we think, but I'm good at loving these sinners, but those ones are the bad guys. I'm obviously making very broad strokes there. Everything is on a spectrum. But my point is that Jesus loved people that are despised by the lefties, by the Tories, by Brexiters, Remainers, the middle class, the working class, the upper class. He found the people who were in every kind of outgroup, the outsiders, the social pariahs, and he loved them. And for us, it's so easy to point at people that we see as judgmental, who despise someone that you're okay with, that are in your circle of acceptability and say, how can you judge these people? You just need to empathize with them, only to be blind to the people that you despise and reject. The fact is, there are some sinners that you find it easy to show mercy to, and others that you find difficult to love. And there are a number of factors for that. Through, it could be just through cultural conditioning, like I say, the things you read. It could be through your upbringing. There might be traditions or things that your parents told you, things that your family told you, that have just set you up against this one group of people, perhaps another nationality or race. Uh, the papers we read, the people we hang out with, we, we have these people that we think they're bad and you find it hard to love them. We see some figures as irredeemable villains and some figures as just misunderstood. But I'm afraid Jesus doesn't give you a get-out clause and he calls you to love all sinners. You see, the commission of God is more important than your own preconceptions or even your past experiences. How could I love them? They did this to me. Jesus tells you to. And I want to urge you today to find the people that it's harder for you to love, that it's harder for you to show mercy to, that it's harder for you to welcome in, and show them the same love as Christ would. Because Christ-likeness is formed in the fires of obedience. And that's doubly true when obedience is hard and sacrificial. We have a model of obedience in Jesus. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I didn't come to save the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. And that's you. That's all of you. And in choosing true sacrificial obedience to God the Father, he's modeled for us obedience across all levels. And as I was preparing this, I just felt God wants to press into this point that look for ways to be obedient to God and, and the calling of Jesus that's hard. Say it's hospitality. It's easy to be hospitable to people you like. It's hard and obedient to be hospitable to strangers or people you don't know or people you don't like. And I want to talk about why a bit now, because why we do that. 
Because the Pharisees didn't get the point that they were sinners too. That they were the sick that in need of a physician as well. And if you're here today, you're in one of only two camps. Either you were a sinner that's been saved miraculously by Jesus, not of anything that you've done. And you're now undergoing this process of sanctification where you become more like Jesus. But you, you were a sinner and you've been brought into life with Jesus. Or you are a sinner in need of being saved now. And if you're in that former camp of you were a sinner and you've been saved, then that should change your perspective. And you should live in the freedom of that grace, knowing where you've come from. There's a, a lyric in my favorite musical, Hamilton, that says, look at where you are, look at where you've started. The fact that you're alive is a miracle. And I just think it's important for Christians to regularly take stock of where they started and where they are now, how they've been brought from death to life, how we are no different but just because of God's mercy and his compassion and because he first welcomed us into his presence, we've been saved and brought from death to life. It's not of anything we've done. And the moment that you do that, the moment you realize, I was a wretch in need of saving as well, just like everyone else, slowly the judgment starts to go down and the compassion starts to go up. If you've ever heard the phrase, there but for the grace of God go I, I think that's a really helpful thing when you're looking at people in society and you just think, they're bad guys. You can think, well, there but for the grace of God go I. If God hadn't rescued me from my darkness and brought me into light, if God hadn't shown mercy to me, that could be me. And slowly judgment starts to ebb away and compassion starts to grow. So take stock. Look at where you were. Look at where you are now. And back to Romans 5, Christ, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did that while you were a sinner. He did that while you had rejected God. He did that while you were blind to him, while you were walking away from him. He still died for you. And so I think that should cause us to go out of our way to show mercy to people, especially mercy to people that it's hard to show love to. What does this look like? Well, I have a few practical pointers that I think are just the kind of thing that Jesus would do and I think are useful for us as well. So, one thing I think you can do is to speak well of others. You know what it's like when everyone's piling in on the villain of the day, whoever it is that has attracted the ire of the crowd. Pause before you join in with that. Empathize. Think, how have they got to that place? If it comes to it, just remember your mum's advice. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. To just talk other people down. Who does that help? And all you're doing is positioning yourself in a place of judgment and self-righteousness over them, when in reality, there but for the grace of God go you. 
And the people that um, people do talk about, those outsiders, the people in the out group, invite them into your home or go out for food with them. Now, obviously, you're not going to be inviting Fred Goodwin round to your house anytime soon unless you move in different circles to me. But there are outsiders in your workplace or your study place. The man with sexist views, he's not going to be popular. The colleague with a checkered sexual history that is always a topic of gossip. The one who sucks up to the boss to try and get promotion. The boorish, argumentative student who always starts debates. Basically, the person that everyone else is talking about negatively when they're not in the room. That's the kind of person that Jesus would make a beeline for and say, hey, I want to show you mercy, I want to show you compassion. And you can do that too, not with any agenda, just to show them the love of Jesus. A lot of these people will probably be aware of the things they don't like about themselves, of the fact that they are difficult to get on with. And if you just come up and say, hey, let's go for a drink after work today, or hey, do you want to come around? I'll cook you some food. That's showing love and mercy to outsiders. And then you should listen to their stories once you get that time with them. Why? Because it will increase your empathy incredibly. Once you know where they've come from, it's hard to keep judging them. Your compassion will go up. And prepare to leave your comfort zone. Levi invited Jesus round to his. Who else was there? A bunch of other tax collectors. This is a room full of the worst people in Palestinian society at this time. And Jesus is having dinner with them and apparently making his disciples do the same thing as well because the Pharisees are complaining to them. And maybe this will provoke you to hang out with the kind of people that moralists will look at you and say, oh, really? Them? You're friends with them? Yeah, put your reputation on the line for welcoming in sinners. None of this is to mitigate what they've done. Jesus never shied away from calling out their sin or calling them to repentance. He did, after all, call them the sick who are in need of a physician. But it's to show compassion, to show the love of God that you yourself have experienced and to pass that on. And what's amazing about this is that God changes people's hearts. In Jesus' discipleship group of 12 people, there was Simon the Zealot, who was a religious revolutionary fighting against the ruling authorities. And there was a tax collector who'd been working for those very religious authorities. How did that happen? How did those two people who would have hated one another, end up in this intimate friendship group. It's because Jesus changes hearts. And once they were friends with Jesus, once they'd been brought into that friendship with Jesus, when he'd welcomed them in, zealots and tax collectors stopped becoming their primary identifiers and disciple became instead. So maybe 
you can find rich friendships from welcoming sinners as Jesus did. What if you're here though and you haven't been welcomed in by Jesus yet? If you haven't taken hold of the forgiveness that he offers to you? You might even be thinking, I'm fine. Uh, Jesus mentioned that only the sick need a physician and I'm fine. I'm sure there's a nagging feeling sometimes that there might be more. I'm not perfect, but no one is. I don't need this. I'm here to tell you that actually you're not fine, but there's a solution to that. My friend James um, went to Mozambique several years ago. He came back. We were hanging out. I was like, how are you doing? He's like, oh, don't feel well. I was like, okay, this happens. Saw him a couple of days later. James, how's it going? Weird. I keep going from hot to cold. My body just keeps changing. James, that, that doesn't sound terribly healthy. You should see a doctor. He didn't. It took him few more days of seeing other people going, James, please go and see a doctor for him to finally go. And when he got there, turned out he had malaria badly. The doctor said if he'd come in a day later, he could have died. He didn't realize how sick he was. It took other people saying, warning him, saying, you need this. And that's kind of what I'm doing today. I'm saying, you need this. Not out of judgment, but because I recognize the symptoms that you have. I've experienced them too. I've I've been there. That feeling that you, you aren't enough, that you don't even meet the standards you set for yourself, let alone the standards of everyone else. That's not you being fine. Those are symptoms of a greater sickness that you've been cut off from God and your purposes of being in a relationship with him. Again, I'm not saying this because I feel like I'm better than you. People who have heart transplants don't boast about their ability to be put under an anesthetic and have a heart put in. They celebrate the doctor and the donor who made it possible that they could live. And that's, that's all I'm doing today. I'm telling you about the greatest physician, God, who can bring you back into relationship with him through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is not friends in a church community, although that's great. And the church is a wonderful plan of God for this city, this world. The gospel is not self-help to be a better person. Although you will find over time that Jesus shapes you to be more like the person you were designed to be. It's not an intellectual theory, although there are things that you'll have to wrestle with. The gospel is saying, I'm not okay. I'm a sinner. I've rejected God. And I repent of that. And then the gospel is putting your trust in the forgiveness of Jesus. It's saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus saves. Levi left everything. 
It seems from this story, like he was at work. Jesus rocked up and said, follow me. And he was just like, okay. Left his work behind. Probably got fired. But he just thought, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus today, he's calling you to do the same thing. Leave behind your old life, your regrets. Put your trust in him, in his forgiveness, his love for you. And you too can be welcomed into this great feast with Jesus that we're all a part of here. To know his mercy and his compassion and his love. To know that we've come from this place of wretchedness and been brought into a place of grace. We're going to end by singing Amazing Grace. The bank come back up. Many of you will know this song. It's been around a few hundred years now. As we sing it, if you're here and you're a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus and his forgiveness, I want you to think about that phrase, look at where you are, look at where you started, to think, I was a wretch and I was saved. I was lost and I was found. I was blind, but now I see. You were a sinner in need of a savior and you found Jesus, or rather, he found you. You were someone who by all rights should have brought shame to Jesus, but instead he welcomed you in and he died for you. And just let your heart be flooded with the compassion of Jesus. The way that he welcomes in sinners and says, Jesus, I want to be more like you. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, he's offering you that same welcome now. Saying, doesn't matter what you've done. I befriended Levi, one of the worst in society, a traitor, an exploiter. I welcomed him in and I showed him love and I gave him hope. And he's offering that for you today as well. So as we sing Amazing Grace, perhaps you want to accept that amazing grace. Say, Jesus, I'm yours. I put my trust in you.